0: Now, let me uh, pray before we begin. Lord, we ask that your word would once more be a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. That you would guide us and teach us through it. That you would help us understand what you desire for us. And help us to be those who obey you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I... I wonder what Steve Jobs would have done. I wonder what he would have done in Titus's position. Steve Jobs, of course, uh, has recently died, I'm sure you've all heard about it. Uh, he was the architect of much of the success of the Apple, uh, Apple brand. Um, he was the one who in many ways brought uh, Apple uh, back out of the wilderness into what is pole position. Uh, in the computer industry uh, at this time. Uh, We've been hearing a lot about him since his death in the news. Um, If you Google Steve Jobs, uh, you will get a whole host of stuff about what Steve Jobs has said regarding leadership and what Steve Jobs has said regarding vision and so on. But I wonder what he would have done on the island of Crete. How would he have proposed evangelizing the entire island? What strategy would he have used to implement uh, this evangelization of the island? Who, who would he have brought on board uh, into his inner circle to help him complete the task? Well, we will never know, of course, what Steve Jobs would have done. But we do know what the apostle Paul would have done and did do and what Titus was told to do on the island of Crete. Titus was left on the island by Paul uh, after he'd spent some time there preaching and ministering. And Titus, as we know from verse 5, was left to finish what Paul started. Titus was left with Paul's full authority to complete or to straighten out, as the NIV translates it, uh, Paul's unfinished work uh, and appoint elders In every town. And it's very interesting to note just the strategy and the vision of the apostle as he he thinks through how he's going to bring the gospel to the island of Crete. He has a vision and a strategy that is one of planting gospel churches or gospel fellowships all over the island with godly leadership to run them. That was his strategy. That was a strategy for growth. That was a strategy to bring the gospel to the uh, the islanders. And Titus was here to oversee it all. In very simple terms, Paul was planting churches and making sure that they had leaders who were healthy or sound in their doctrine and in their lifestyles, who could lead these fellowships and make sure that these fellowships stuck true to the real message of the gospel, the message that Paul preached, as we looked at in the first four uh, verses, the message that Paul received from Jesus, the message that Paul preached as the apostle, and also leaders who could deal with the false teachers on the island. That's what we will see as we look uh, through these verses. Paul details out for Titus who he is to appoint, as leaders in these young, uh, young churches over the island and why it is necessary for him to appoint such leaders. So the first thing we notice about what Paul says to, uh, is that Titus uh, here is to appoint elders. And then in verse 7 he uses another term. He uses the term overseer or bishop is the older word. These terms seem to have been inter- interchangeable. So as an elder is also uh, an overseer, a bishop. The elder is to exercise oversight. The phrase uh, in verse 7, which is, uh, as the NIV has it, entrusted with God's work, is more literally, as God's steward. Like a a secular steward of a household at this time, uh, in the first century, would have been responsible for running that household on behalf of his master. So the elder is responsible for running, for leading God's household, God's church. Just like the apostle himself, the elder is at one and the same time under God and over the church, which he is appointed to. And what's more, Paul does not envisage that these elders would be lone rangers, uh, over one elder over a single church fellowship. Rather, he instructs Titus here that he is to appoint elders, plural. That is more than one. For the leadership of the church is to be done by a group of men, not just one person. So Titus was to go and appoint elders in all the churches that had been planted as Paul had been there, as he himself had been there, as they had been evangelizing on the island. As these churches had developed, he was to appoint a group of men in each one who could lead, who would be the overseers, the stewards. They would be men taken from amongst the number of the fellowship. And there is no indication uh, anywhere in the letter or in any of the other pastoral epistles as to how they were to be appointed. Uh, what that would actually look like. But they were to be identified and they were to be given the responsibility of oversight and stewardship. Now, on Crete at this time, the churches were very young, probably. Probably. Uh, and in various towns and various villages in the island. So from amongst those people, the, uh, from amongst the believing men, there needed to be identified and appointed these leaders for this task of uh, stewarding God's house. But how then is Titus to identify them? Who is going to do it? And that's what Paul then looks at in verses 6 to 9. And he looks at the characteristics that Titus is to look for in these men. In verse 6, he looks at their private and family life. In verse 7, he looks at their personal characteristics. And finally, in verse 9, he speaks of their convictions and their skills. Indeed, we could say that we could categorize these things into uh, character, conviction, and competencies, to borrow from the the Trellis and the Vine book, if you've, ever, if you've read it. But if we take a brief look, firstly, at the whole list, apart from verse 9, you see there that the most remarkable thing about what Paul identifies as the, as the necessary characteristics are that they are completely unremarkable. Indeed, in many ways, these could describe any Christian, and we would hope that would describe any Christian. You see, there are no special silver bullets that Titus is to identify. No absolute necessity, particular qualifications that if you don't have, that's it. And only very, very few people possess it. Some divine inspiration or whatever it may be. He is to look for men who display the change that the gospel brings. Who live upright and godly lives in their family, life and in their public life. Indeed, if we go back to uh, to verse 1, we find that it's, of course, the faith and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, this message that Paul had been preaching. These men were to display that godliness, the faith and knowledge of the gospel, is to be evident in their lives. The message of the gospel of God's grace is to grip them to such an extent that they live in a godly way. Now, that should indeed be true of every Christian, but especially of those who lead. The evidence of God's grace at work must be there. And so, Paul goes on, they are to be blameless. Paul uses this word twice in this passage here, verse 6 and also in verse 7. Indeed, these these verses are actually, I suppose, an explanation of what it means to be blameless. Blameless in the home, blameless in in general life. The idea here of of being blameless, or some translations have it above reproach, um, it carries the idea of not being able to make an accusation against a person. These elders must be free from any possible accusation that might be brought against them and therefore against the message of the church and the church itself. They can't bring it into disrepute in the wider population. And so Paul details out, why, out that they must be blameless, first of all, in their family life. Uh, the husband of but one wife, he says. Or literally, a one-woman man, is what he says. That is, they must be faithful in their marriage. Not given to running after other women. Paul has said, of course, the same thing to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy chapter 2. So this is actually quite important for Paul. Titus is to only look for those who are faithful in marriage. Now, I don't think this uh, rules out the possibility of an elder who isn't married. But I think what Paul is basically saying here is that if they are married, they must be faithful. Faithful to his wife. And you can see why such a stipulation is made. For if a man can't be trusted to be faithful to his marriage, to the the covenant he made with his marriage, how can he really be trusted to be faithful with the gospel? If he feels morally here, when the scriptures are so very clear, I mean, it couldn't be any clearer, you shall not commit adultery, then it also means that those outside the church, of course, can point the finger. You say one thing, but you do another. You claim to have a moral standard and yet you don't keep it. And then they have the opportunity, of course, to dismiss the message. So faithfulness in marriage, if the man is married, is non-negotiable. But also then, if the person is married with kids, then the children must believe. Now, immediately we'll run into a problem here. If this is the case, then firstly, it is more, it is a... If we take it as believe, in terms of believe the gospel, then it is a more strict interpretation that Paul suggests here than elsewhere, especially in 1 Timothy. It also causes problems because parents are not ultimately responsible for their children's salvation. That alone belongs to God. We want parents, obviously, to do absolutely everything they can so that their children will believe, but they cannot make them believe. It would also, of course, mean that part of the session would need to resign, myself included. But the word which is translated here, believe, could also perfectly legitimately be translated faithful. And actually that fits better with what Paul goes on to say about them being wild and about them being disobedient. For I think uh, Paul's point here is much more to do with with the children accepting the leadership or authority of their father and being willing to obey him, to be honor their father and mother. These men must have children who are faithful to them, not given to be wild and disobedient. I think uh, a a, a particular disobedience is in view here. For the word Paul uses in verse 10, when he speaks of false teachers being rebellious, is the same word he uses in verse 6, which is translated there disobedient. The children of these men must not be flirting with the false teaching that is causing problems on the island. They must be faithful to the message that their father teaches in the church and willing to live under his authority as a father and as an elder in the church. Imagine for a moment... um, if they were, if, you, if, if uh, uh, certain elders' children were following false, the false teaching. Imagine that father sitting down at his dinner table. He uh, opens his Bible, begins to read, and begins to try and explain to his family. And then the children start disrupting him and telling him, well, that's not right, daddy, because actually what you need to do is you need to keep the food laws. Or you need to keep the festivals and Sabbaths and new moons or whatever it may be in order to know God's salvation. It can't be just by grace. It would be like uh, having a mole at the very top of the circus. If you've seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you'll know what that means. You have someone in your family who is working for the opposition. Can you imagine the strain that would put on the relationships in the household? And then, if you will, take a look at verse 11. And you will see that some of the tactics that the false teachers were using. And you see just why these, the, the children of the elders must be faithful. Their tactic was to ruin households. So, since an elder uh, is given oversight and trusted with God's household... Since he is called to steward it, if he cannot steward his own family first, then is he capable of stewarding God's household? So Titus is to look for men who are faithful in their marriage and whose children are faithful and will not cause the family to tear itself apart. Paul then, uh, in verse 7, turns to more of the characteristics of blamelessness that he expects Titus to look for, specifically uh, in in personal characteristics now. In particular, um, they are not to be overbearing and quick-tempered. If they're to work as a team, if they're to work with each other, they need to be able to get on, not fall out all the time. A quick-temper wouldn't really be a good idea in that situation. They need to be able to keep their heads when people come complaining about the latest trivial thing that is just nothing more than a distraction. Equally, they must not be slaves to alcohol or violent. These two things, of course, could, have, could be related. But the elder must be in control of himself and not allow alcohol to control him. By the same measure, he must... Uh, Be able to deal with disputes, with trouble, without resolving to physical force. However tempting it could be at times. And also his motives must be pure. He should not be motivated by dishonest gain. He must be totally honest in all his financial affairs. Rather, his motivation in all these things should be marked again by grace which gives rather than always seeking reward grace which thinks of others better than ourselves grace which understands that forgiveness is part of the gospel message then in verse 8 Paul follows these negatives with some personal or some sorry some positive characteristics Titus is to look for those who are hospitable Very important characteristic in the ancient world, uh, to be able to let people into your home and look after them. It was literally a matter of life and death in the ancient world for some people. It was often costly. Food and materials were very scarce for families. There was no Tesco's and Sainsbury's for them to run into in an evening if they didn't have milk. If you didn't have it, you did without it. So to be hospitable was to put into practice that genuine love and service of others. These men whom Titus was to appoint were to be marked by being hospitable. Bringing people into their homes. Giving and not counting the cost. They are to love what is good and be self-controlled. The man's passions and appetites must be under control. Paul speaks uh, of self-control, of course, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. These leaders are required to have themselves under control and also upright, holy, and to be disciplined. Upright in our dealings with others, holy or pure in his morality, uh, and disciplined in his life and in his pursuits. All these things are the marks which Titus is to look for They are the the exposition of what it looks like for these men to be blameless in the home and in their personal lives. Their character must be marked by a genuine experience of grace that is displayed in the way they live. But, just as the message of the gospel must grip them, they must also get to grips with it. For not only must they be blameless in character, they must also be so in their convictions and their competencies. Verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Titus is to identify men who hold true to the apostolic doctrine, to sound or healthy doctrine. Literally to the teaching, the teaching of the apostle. That which came from the apostle and who he himself received from Christ. These men have to hold firmly. That is, they must be willing to hold on to it, not allow it to be changed, diluted, or watered down. They are committed to it. Committed to this message of the gospel as Paul preached it. For, in verses 1 to 3, we see it alone is what produces godliness in hope of eternal life. Anything else does not. Their convictions must be in accordance with Paul's doctrine. But what's more, they are not just required to be committed to this doctrine, they are also uh, to be able to encourage or teach others that same healthy, sound doctrine. These men are picked out because they have the ability to teach. Here we have again the same idea that we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Reliable men who can then teach others. It's not enough that they just hold the healthy doctrine. They must be able to pass it on. They must be able to help others grow in their faith and knowledge in hope of eternal life. Indeed, these leaders, if we compare them to what Paul says of himself in the first three verses of the the letter, very much mirror his task. They must not only be able to teach this healthy message uh, that brings godliness and hope of eternal life, but they must also be able to refute those who oppose it. They must be able to recognize and correct false teaching when they hear it they must be willing to stand against those who are pushing unhealthy doctrine what is not uh, that what doctrine that does not come from paul in this case doctrine for us that does not come from the bible those who teach something they must stand against those who teach something that is contrary to what the apostles taught so titus as he goes around the churches, is looking for men whose character and lives are shaped by the gospel, by Paul's message as he preached it. He was to look for those who could teach and who could encourage others in that same message so that they would have that same hope in Christ and stand against those who oppose Paul's message. And that is vitally important. For any other message ultimately brings death, not life. So they must stand opposed to those who do not preach Paul's gospel. And in many ways we, we begin to see the, the apostles' strategy for growth of the, uh, for the growth of the church on the island in this. Paul wanted these young churches to be set up all uh, in, in all the towns uh, in the island with healthy leadership in each one. Men who were blameless in their conduct, who could teach and encourage others in that sound doctrine and allow them then to live godly and upright lives amongst the people in their communities. To impact their communities through godly living, which comes from that healthy doctrine. So what um, can we learn from these verses here for uh, St. Peter's? Well, firstly, and obviously, we can see the characteristics we would look for in our leaders. We, we may well be appointing uh, more leaders in the not-too-distant future. When it comes to the congregation thinking through who these should be, here is the criteria by which it is judged. Men who are blameless, whose lives evidently are been gripped by the message of the gospel. And also, who have the ability to teach and to encourage others in the faith. Who have the ability to apply Scripture to the various situations which arise in the church. Men who will be able to stand against anything that is taught which is not in accordance with biblical truth, with the apostolic gospel. Men who will be willing to, to take the flack, to take the abuse when it is necessary to stand up against what is false. And that isn't easy. That takes a great deal of courage. They must not be quick tempered. They must love what is good. These are the type of men we should be seeking. But I think it would be wrong of us to limit the characteristics given by Paul here just to elders, just to the the top leadership. Surely we would want the same kind of things for, say, our Sunday school teachers. For those who lead in house groups or fellowship groups. Who teach the Bible really at any point in our church life. Are these characteristics displayed in their lives? Characteristics, I think, here, these characteristics, I think, provide us with a good blueprint. Good blueprint. Get my tongue around that. Uh, Good good blueprint. blueprint. (laughs) I'll try again, a good blueprint, <laughs> got it, to use when we uh, are appointing into the, any of those positions, positions of responsibility in the church. And indeed, even when we're, uh, positions of leadership are exclusively for men, it doesn't discount that women will have teaching roles in the church, other roles. Do we look for the same characteristics in those circumstances? Are we really taking seriously And assessing correctly the people we want to appoint. Now this is not a criticism of anyone in particular or anything like that. This, to me, is what this passage is requiring of us. To me, it seems that we are required to think really carefully of the people we appoint to whatever position. But especially to the eldership, especially to those who will lead. And please, uh, any of you who are not uh, involved in leadership in the church, don't think for a second that this message has absolutely nothing to do with you. Remember that this letter to Titus, although it was written to Titus, yes, Paul wrote it with the whole church in mind. It's important that all the members of the church, all the adherents, understand that these, understand all these things and know what is expected of those in leadership. And I think it's important also for myself, for my fellow elders, to take a long, critical look at how we measure up to what Paul describes here. Uh, This past week has brought into a great focus for me in particular the demands that are made on leadership and the need for us to have these characteristics that Paul speaks of. Indeed, this past week has highlighted the very... um, well in pretty spectacular fashion the importance of having group leadership in a congregation but how do we measure up how are we doing those of us who have families in leading our families how are we doing in our hospitality how are we doing in our self-control if we were up for election as elders again would we be electable Leadership is critical and very important in the life and witness of the church. How are we holding up in this area? As the steward, as the overseer, you take the lead. You are the example which others must follow. I say that to myself as well. How are we doing? But I think finally... um, Something we can take from this little passage is also Paul's strategy um, in looking to reach the island of Crete. Now Dundee is not Crete, obviously. If you, it certainly hasn't been this last wee while. You, the weather. Um, it's also uh, not the twenty. It's also now the twenty-first century, not the first century. But is there anything that we can see here that can help us develop uh, a kind of vision of how we we as a church would seek. To reach this city, the city that God has placed us into with the message of the gospel. Well, I don't think it's wrong for us to take Paul's method right out of these pages and have it as a vision for ourselves. To establish fellowships of God's people meeting in various places in this city with leaders who are godly, who can teach and encourage the members in healthy doctrine. And allowing those members then to go out into the wider society and live godly lives in the present age. Now, I'm very well aware at the minute that uh, church planting and all that kind of thing is the in thing. It's all in vogue at the moment. It is one of my own personal bugbears that there is so much talk about church planting and yet so little action in response to all the talk. But nonetheless, I think it is a great and a biblical strategy for us to employ, As we think about how we can reach this city with the gospel. To look at establishing fellowships of people in different areas with godly leadership and allow people to live those godly lives before the watching world. Seeking to bring those outside to a saving knowledge of the truth. As a church seeking to reach this city with the gospel, we will never be able to do so just from this building alone. We need to think bigger than that. I know that there are churches in London at this time putting these very principles, as we've read them here in Titus, into action in the great city of London. And I think if we are serious about reaching the lost in this city, then surely it is something that we need to take seriously and plan for in the future. Like Titus in Crete, to establish fellowships with godly leadership throughout the city to reach this city with the truth. The truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. The people in Dundee need that hope. God has called us to be his church and I think we must go with that message through whatever means we can to bring it to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that it convicts us, that it helps us see our real condition. Father, we pray that as we've thought about leadership, that you will help us understand more of what it means, help us to apply what we've learned to our own congregation, give us a vision for how we may implement these things in this city that you have called us to. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland please visit the website of SOLAS the Centre for Public Christianity at solace cpcorg Once again that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.